Good afternoon, and welcome to Evaluating the Post-COVID Cyber Threat Horizon, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Fortinet. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking for your participation as an audience. Uh, You can send in your questions and comments as they occur to you in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program, and we'll do a quick one-question poll and have some fun with that, and then I'll have our panelists guess at your response. Just so a nice way to view the screen, um, at the top center, you can click and get it into side-by-side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you like and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Uh, Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go probably about 35, 40 minutes uh, with our panel discussion featuring Art Ream, Senior Director of IT Applications and CISO with the Cambridge Health Alliance, Nemi George, VP, Information Security Officer and Service Operations, Pacific Dental Services, and Renee Tarun, Deputy CISO with Fortinet, and then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in and get started. Um, Art, let's start off with you. You want to give me an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Cambridge Health Alliance is a three-hospital system in the city of Cambridge, uh, a suburb of Boston area. We have 18 clinics, uh, primary care and specialty. Uh, The three hospitals are acute care and urgent care centers. Um, We are the public health commission for the city of Cambridge, oddly enough. Uh, kind of an odd corporation setup. So we have both a city and a uh, nonprofit um, organization. Uh, I, my role there is the chief information security officer and I have a little bit of the applications uh, underneath of me as well, but my primary focus is, is that particularly. Uh, have about 140,000 patients uh, and a safety net for the, for the um, state of Massachusetts. So we have a large behavioral health population, uh, as well uh, as community care. Very good. Thank you, Art. Nemi? Yeah, um, good afternoon, all. My name is Nemi, um, responsible for information security and service operations, which includes IT governance, um, security architecture, um, engineering, um, and also all of the service and support arms of, of IT. Um, I work for Pacific Dental Services. Uh, we are a national um, dental support organization, um, supporting over 800 dental um, offices around the country across 22 states. And we're responsible for everything um, from IT to data center hosting to marketing, um, packs. Think about a dentist coming in, turnkey, and doing dentistry, and then we kind of do everything else uh, for them. Very good, Renee. Yes, I'm uh, Renee Taron from Fortnite. Um, Fortnite's leading cybersecurity company, um, founded in 2000, based in Sunnyvale, California. Um, we have one of the broadest um, portfolios of um, security, network security needs, um, with high degrees of automation and integration built in. Um, our focus area is really looking in zero trust network access, uh, security-driven networking, uh, cloud security, and uh, AI-driven security uh, operations. Um, we have about 465,000 customers worldwide, um, including many in the healthcare industry, and we're fortunate enough to call 70% of the Fortune 100 um, our customers. 
Excellent. Very good. Thank you for that. Nemi, let's start with you. How would you describe what security professionals experienced during the COVID-19 crisis? I think most security uh, professionals, um, COVID presented an opportunity to, I guess, um, put the entire security program to the test. But I think for most people, um, the, the, the combination of balancing security with productivity, allowing the organizations to, to work from home, in some cases using um, um, personal devices, um, using untrusted networks, um, you know, coming in from areas where security professionals you know, traditionally don't have control and don't have visibility. So I think overall, the um, security organizations uh, worldwide, uh, it, it's been a challenge, but also an opportunity for a lot of them to, to test and validate the controls like remote access uh, working, uh, some of those um, things, VDI and other technologies that they put in place has been an opportunity to road test those technologies, I think. Road test, very good. Renee, how would you describe what you saw your clients experience? Yeah, I mean, some of the same thing is, is what Nemi uh, said, but I think for a lot of organizations, um, I think some weren't necessarily prepared to uh, support remote working. Um, you know, especially for their entire organizations. You know, for some organizations, they had to rapidly pivot um, to put that infrastructure in place uh, to support, um, you know, that remote working and, and telemedicine. And then for others that already had, you know, some form of infrastructure in place, when they realized that they had to flip the switch to, you know, really support the masses of, of, of people, you know, they realized in a lot of cases that their platforms didn't scale. Um, so a lot of organizations we saw rapidly had to change out their infrastructure. Um, the good news is that in a lot of cases, you know, the IT and security teams really were now seen as the saviors um, and really to, able to and help you know, business continuity. Um, but it definitely created additional challenges, like Nami said, with you know, now unsecured devices connecting in. But also from an education standpoint, you know, many organizations were faced with the challenges that they had now have a workforce that had never worked for home, from home before and didn't necessarily understand what that meant. Um, to now work, you know, outside, you know, the office space and, you know, to ensure that, you know, they're doing the, those good basic, you know, hyper, cyber hygienes, you know, ensuring that they have, you know, changed their, their default password on their home routers and, and things like that. So um, I think it was a real challenge for a lot of organizations also doing not only from a technology, but also, you know, from a training and awareness standpoint. Was, uh, so we've spoken to some, some, executives who had, I guess, been fortunate enough to, to have made the proper investments in that infrastructure and the platforms and all that. So they were in a much better position to handle what needed to be done. Do you think most organizations should have been there? I mean, how do you look at it? Do you look at organizations that were way behind as having missed, having not done what they should have done? How would you describe that, Renee? I mean, I think it depends. A lot of organizations, it was more of a cultural. Um, I, th I think for some organizations, you know, across the board, um, you know, working remotely adds additional complexity, especially when you're dealing with things like compliance, um, organizations that deal with a lot of, you know, PII information. So for some organizations, I, I think there was concern of, you know, how do you really extend those, you know, compliance and controls into, you know, environments outside of, you know, the traditional office spaces. So, um, you know, for a lot of organizations, you know, I, I think they've seen that now you, you can, you know, 
be successful outside. And, um, and I think, you know, going forward, I think that we are going to see more of that because, you know, today we're working at home because of a pandemic tomorrow, it could be a natural disaster or a terror attack that forces us back into the same situation. Um, so I think, you know, for those organizations that had cultural concerns, whether that be, again, like I said, either compliance or even concerns over, you know, productivity, you know, of the workforce. Um, I think they've now seen that, you know, it can work and it can work well. Um, so I think just going forward, you're going to see a lot more organizations, you know, investing um, that in the future. Art, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, both Nemi and Rune uh, touched on on some some of the very key topics. You have you had a, you had a largely cultural change for individuals. Um, you had organizational cultural change that aren't used to you know their workforce going at home. You had a workforce leaving and going home looking for support at already overwhelmed help desk that actually had a, how do I connect? Where do I get? Scalability is definitely in there. I mean, we had the infrastructure in place, but we had to scale up to go from you know, 2,000 workers a day to 6,000 workers a day from home. So now you've got to get tokens out there and everything else, you know, and the infrastructure up that. Um, you're now posture checking external, uh, you know, devices that are out there in the peripheral. You've now extended the borders of your network to everybody's home. Um, you know, I've got the chief privacy officers that are sitting around here going, okay, is son or daughter walking behind the screen with the, you know, the PHI on there? Are they printing at home? Things like that. You know, I actually came up. Um, but I think from an overall, it changed your risk uh, posture, as Nemi mentioned. Um, we had to react very quickly to risk. We had to have risk acceptance processes that are fluid and able to enable the uh, organization to not have barriers and still perform. So making risk decisions started to go from individual committees that you know you actually probably ran every month or something like that with the leadership in there like I do to having a set of you know a few individuals doing it chief security chief privacy legal and one of the operating officers making acceptance risks to the technology that you deployed out and you had to make a decision on a technology and understand the risks from it and document that and then you know thinking down the road post covid we're now back in a remediation stage of, okay, what did we deploy? What's the list? And now looking at all of that now um, to a point where, you know, we're all looking at potentially another surge at this point in time. So now we're going to surge back up into this, uh, utilizing that same technology that we haven't had a chance to get back down through completely yet. So a lot of dynamics going on. And I think Renee and Nemi touched on both of those. So more than flipping a switch, right, Art? More than just uh, buying a technology and flipping a switch and, and everything's good. Much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I had, we had to, I had to scale up my external help desk. I mean, I had to put extra lines in that were just for remote access and dedicated individuals because my internal help desk was completely overwhelmed, couldn't handle the call volume 24-7. They were not a 24-7 help desk. Now you've got remote workers that are treating patients that are coming in that have never done this before. I need somebody on that phone to, you know, get them in through the appliance or whatever they're having difficulty with 24-7. Um, and the volumes, I mean, skyrocketed and overwhelmed, you know, the support desk. They just can't handle it. Right. So this, uh, you kind of touched on this. Uh, obviously, you're saying that you had to let the risk level increase in order to do the patient care. Um, and, and go through a little more about the, 
decision-making process, who was involved? I think you said it went from a monthly meeting to a daily almost huddle. Um, and what's the process of, of elevating that risk level and the considerations that go into it? Yeah, so, you know, at Cambridge, I run a committee called iSpot, Information Security Privacy Oversight Team, and that has everybody on it from the uh, chief operating officer uh, all the way down to the security engineers, including risk compliance um, and, and a whole host of everybody, including the marketing department as well. Um, and that's the organization or the committee uh, that meets monthly that accepts risk. We look at the, you know, the new technology that we're going to bring in. We look at programs as well, not just technology, and it is particularly evolved over time. But that committee in particular would evaluate risk and has very, you know, a charter to it and it's regulated by mass laws and, and things like that. So that was that, you know, in a usual pace, that's fine. But at some point in time, you know, you start to go into the FEMA disaster, uh, you know, model where they're having a command center and then things are driving in the command center. I, I would be and end up being one level below that. So what does the organization need to do and what do they need to change? Okay, it involves all of this technology that would get pushed down to an operational sector with me, where I would have the chief privacy, the chief compliance, uh, one of the chief operating officer and myself, we would look at that from a perspective and go, all right, we got to do this. This is the risk that we're going to have. We'd fire through that sometimes in two, two hours, three hour meetings, just to make sure that everyone was going to go document it, fire it off and let them go and start to do their operational needs and start to move forward in a new technology. Uh, what are you going to do over the next couple of weeks? So it's very fluid. It's just constant every day, every morning you're getting something different and you know operations are starting to shut down and then remote forces are starting to come up so once you become that fluid that team that larger team is not meeting but you're making decisions at, at a certain level of document it and and the risk starts to go up because you really need to understand that you're not fully getting into this complete testing you know and if you're you're like you know a couple of my colleagues that are in New York City that have zero trust that you know Renee was uh, talking about earlier, that starts to compromise that. Who, what systems can talk to each other? I mean, you're starting to move that around and that can get, you know, you can start not talking to things because you're making changes really quick. Um, so that's kind of the enhanced risks that we ended up going through. And then, you know, I'm probably we'll discuss this a little bit later is when you get to the end of that, yeah. you gotta remediate that. You gotta start to think about, okay, what do we got out there now? And, and is it gonna remain part of the portfolio? across the board right yeah we will definitely talk about that um nemi how would you describe the process of uh increase accepting an increase in risk in order to provide new services and technologies to help your clients operate right you're empowering the dental practitioners the dentists so um how did you sort of take on that role of, of accepting risk and who did you make that decision with yeah, I think very similar to, um, to Art. We we had a cross-party group uh, responsible for for risk, and we went from you know our scheduled risk meetings to essentially twice a day. Um, certainly, the third week um, in in March, when things came came to a head, we were having morning huddles and um, afternoon huddles uh, as well. And the key thing about risk is making sure you have the right people and. Uh, again, very similar to what Art said, we had folks in marketing because um, everything that we did 
had to go in line with the, the directives and the mandates that were coming out from the various counties and states. And so uh, whether we're open for emergency and then responding to what does that mean in terms of signage at the doors, all the way to the adverts that were going out. So, you know, we, ha <clears throat> we had our communication team. We obviously had the execs, we had compliance, we had uh, privacy, uh, we had security, and I also have operations. And so that was good because we were, part of my team is responsible for getting the work done, right? And the other part of my team is responsible for, as we kind of joke in security, getting in the way of getting the work done. So <laughs> I had to balance those two things of saying, you know, we've got to get people working remotely. And, and in my organization, that meant a few things uh, very quickly, um, uh, just going to some depth. Um, we had a bunch of folks who were able to work directly um, using um, straight into the SaaS applications, um, if you like, using an identity provider. You had others that needed access to um, applications that were three, four layers deep within our infrastructure. So traditionally, those guys would have to go through VPN, but we didn't have enough VPN licenses, and we also had a VPN appliance that was, um, you know, um, essentially um, should have been retired. And so we had to make a decision: do we um, throw more people on that? Do we get more licenses? Uh, luckily, we also had a VDI environment, so very quickly we had to stand that up. And that was a typical example of risk um, um, decisions on the fly because typically we have a very thorough, very robust process for introducing new technology, the whole testing, the validation, alpha groups, all of that stuff. And that typically can take anywhere from three to six months. And that got you know, reduced to about four days. And we <laughs> had our first groups working on our new VDI uh, um, technology. We also had to support uh, our, you know, our clinicians in doing um, teledentistry. And that was another one where we had to get the compliance folks, the privacy folks, the technology teams in the room to say, we can make this work using the technology, but what are the risks? You know, and everything from you know, a, a partner at home, a child at home having access to your device and um, maybe patient images on that. How do we do that securely? So there are so many things we had to take into account, but the key thing was having everyone around the table and having everyone know what their role was. So um, I'll take on a, a particular role with compliance. Um, the, the government uh, thankfully released a few um, updates or clarifications on the use of remote technology. They effectively softened the rules to allow um, remote or teledentistry um, during this period. So whilst we started here at a level of, of uh, risk uh, um, acceptance or tolerance, as those mandates and those updates came in, the ability for our team to interpret them and say, actually, considering all that's going on, you can actually lower that risk tolerance and you will still be fine because you know the 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 regulators are taking into account the the unique situation that we're having to deal with so without having those two come together you end up uh fighting a fire that doesn't necessarily need need to be fought and so we we made sure we had the right folks i think that's that's the key message in here and one very of the, interesting well, go ahead art one of the things nemi you know mentioned and i think renee mentioned it earlier you know we all think about the electronical processes or electronical, is that a word? Probably not. I think it's anyway. electronic, but you, you do what you want, Art. You can right, say what you want. I, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so, um, so when you start to, you know, look at that, there's all these other paper processes that everybody completely forgets about. You know, when you get the users at home, they're like, well, this is on paper. I can't get to this. What do you, how do I do this now? And you get to, I don't know, you know, I don't, you don't have a document. You have a documentation of most all the electronic processes, but when they start coming with paper processes that they had in their offices across a workforce of, you know, 10,000, you're like, I don't know, you know, and then you're trying to scramble to grab a solution to do that. Like, you know, like Nemi said, you know, consents, some of those are in paper, you know, some of those are electronic, you know, in electronic world. Um, um, and it depends on how, you know, it even depends on a service line, but, you know, the paper processes, let's just get away from healthcare and just go plainly with, you know, any industry you forget about, we don't have documented what we do on paper, but somebody's doing something on it. And that creates an immediate challenge, an immediate need and immediate challenge, even with the relaxed um, regulations. Renee, what are your thoughts on all this about increasing risk levels and, and anything Nemi or Art said about how they handled it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the right approach. Um, you know, coming from the security team side of things, you know, the, the security team and the IT teams really are the business enablers. Um, and so it's, it's really working with the business owners um, within the organization to really talk about, you know, what solutions do we need to put in place? And, you know, the business owners really provide you that insight of, you know, what's going to work, what's not going to work, because ultimately, you know, you know, we're there to make, make sure they can continue to do their jobs effectively and securely. Um, so it definitely takes uh, a team sport, you know, across the organization um, when you're looking at, you know, solutions. And then, you know, talking about those risks, you know, what is that level of risk that's acceptable? Um, what can be transferred? Um, and then, you know, what can be, be bought down with adding additional controls or, you know, technology in, in place? So um, definitely it's part of that collaboration. I get often asked, like, hey, what are your biggest things, you know, you, you do in your job? Um, I'm a strategist. Um, it's it's being able to work and play well with others. Um, yeah, that's that's a big part of uh, the job is being that good, seen as a good partner. And you know, I mean, we're pushing on vendors like uh, Renee and, and Fournet. I mean, we're like, I need an appliance. Well, when do you need it? Well, two o'clock this afternoon. Can you ship it to me? Whatever. You know, is it a software appliance? You know, and you know that are getting delivered like that. So we're expecting turnaround times. You know. And that also you know, starts to push into the purchasing process, right? We're circumventing purchasing process. And you got Renee's team saying, what's the PO? And we either cut a PO or we just cut us, you know, an order and we go from that. So there was a lot of give and take on back on that and, um, and, you know, back and forth. But the vendors, you know, are assuming reimbursement risk. The vendors are trying to react their teams to ship me an appliance if I need to, you know, enhance or, or expand my connectivity some way, way, shape, or form, or monitor um, that maybe I had an appliance that was okay, but now I need to scale up like immediately, uh, overnight, and and get it installed. So they're working overnight hours, like we're trying to work overnight hours uh, in the practices. And Nemi's got his IT team running all over the place. Um, the vendors are doing the same thing, and they're getting taxed from multiple organizations. So you know, some of that collaboration and understanding, I know, you know, it gets a little heated at times, but everybody's trying to react to everything uh, all at once. Renee, you want to talk a little? Oh, go ahead, Nemi. Then I'll go to Renee. Gonna, I was just going to say something quickly. Um, Art mentioned this earlier, but I just want to stress it again, which is that um, 
in this climate, there's been a lot of change. I mean, I'll just reel off a few, right? A lot of organization have had, uh, organizations had to enable split tunneling on VPN, for instance, something that in, in the security world we've sort of frowned against for, for a long time to increase performance. Um, a lot of organizations have policies that are, uh, for instance, if you use Box or um, OneDrive, uh, we have policies that say prevent you from being able to download content to your personal device. You can view it, but you, you can't download it. Just take those two as an example. A lot of organizations had to relax those during this, this uh, period. And I think a lot of these um, decisions were made on the fly in reaction, you know, in reaction to the business and the need to keep organizations moving. And I think um, the, the, the reverse argument is that risk councils, risk committees, or whoever is responsible for risk within our organizations, you've got to keep track of those things. And after all this is done, hopefully, come back to the drawing table with that same intensity that those decisions were made and ask which of those things now need to be rolled back. And that's not going to be an easy decision because in some cases, people are used to the level of convenience that uh, these um, um, concessions, if you like, have, have afforded them. We just have to be open to having the conversation um, again, this time deciding which of those changes are, are good for business, which of those security risk, you know, we talk about fear, uncertainty and doubt in the security world a lot of times. And, you know, sometimes we can be seen as alarmist and kind of the, the doomsday um, group. And, you know, here we are in, in a real life doomsday scenario. And, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of um, team members were able to thrive um, through this crisis. So we've got to take stock of all of that and make changes that are risk-based um, roll back where we need to roll back and build on some of those positive changes that we've made through um, through the crisis. Um, that's that's re that's really key for for organizations to do. Very good, Renee. I wonder if you want to comment at all on on what Art was saying about his interactions uh, and needs from the vendors he's working with. Um, have you seen that kind of a thing? And and how have you as a vendor tried to? be flexible and work with your customers. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think all of us um, knew that this is a time there where we all need to come come out and, and, and help. Um, um, one of the things I know, like I mentioned earlier, the concern about, you know, having that uh, security awareness and training. Uh, one of the things Fortinet did early on is we had revamped um, a lot of our security awareness and training. Um, what we did, we opened that up free, um, and it's free until the end of the year. We have what we call our network security expert training. Um, and, you know, it's levels one through eight, but the first couple of levels really focus on that basic security awareness of training that you can have anybody take, even within your family, um, and really kind of give that understanding of what you need to be aware of, um, you know, that basic security knowledge, and even having classes on, you know, what, secure remote working, you know, what does that mean to, to educate those? Um, and in addition, you know, we knew from many organizations, you know, they, they need to ensure their business continuity, um, so we stepped up, um, including some of the healthcare um, organizations, um, especially for those in the Epic Center up in New York. Um, you know, we work with several of our, our, our healthcare customers that were not only had to deal with traditional work, uh, remote working and teleworking, you know, but many of them had to rapidly create mobile testing and triage centers, you know, in non-traditional locations, um, like tents and parking lots or civic centers um, to handle, you know, the influx of um, 
know, COVID cases. So we were able to rapidly deploy some of our security experts and engineers uh, and support personnel to really uh, put boots on the ground to help them get, you know, at wireless access points, firewalls in place to really, um, you know, ha- handle, as Nemi said, you know, you know, a classic crisis. Yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're, you know, to Renee's point, when you're stringing cables across, to, you know, a side road into a parking lot, you know, and hopefully, you know, and trying to get that turned up with, you know, switch or something else out there into the network proper, I mean, that starts to get complicated really quickly, you know, you know, from power to network to everything else you need out there. And then you've got devices sitting outside, you know, in tents and, you know, uh, you know, all of that a- activity that's going on out there. We had tents, uh, quite a bit of tents uh, across our area as well that we had to turn up technology on uh, rather quickly. Uh, Art, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit more. Nemi went into this pretty well. If you want to talk a little bit more about that remediation process that you may be in now, um, you talked about the possibility of a resurgence, uh, which, you know, a lot of people are concerned about in the winter. So, uh, could you be in a scenario where, you know, things have gotten a little quiet now, so you're working to, you know, check out what's been brought in, look at the risk levels, bring the risk down, and then we, we spike up again, and then the risk goes back up. So is it kind of like that up and down, like a heartbeat? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it is. You know, it's almost like an EKG. I mean, like right. to your mention there, I mean, we've, we've started to scale down a little bit. We've looked back at some of our solutions that were actually – utilized quite well, um, had certain level of risk to them. We've actually remediated some of the risks around them, which were, you know, over time we'd accepted them. Now we've remediated them. Now there's something that we can maintain in the portfolio to go forward and actually keep on premise in order to utilize, and it's still being utilized today, but we've just enhanced the security around it and lessened the risk. And that's kind of the iteration that keeps going through. Uh, we started back up the monthly meetings on that. We're out of obviously the um, overall, you know, emergency uh, uh, process and and the overall structure of that. So we're back to normal operations, starting to remediate. But at the same time, we came out of that. We started to look at the next round. So we get it in a better position. We find out what technology worked, what didn't work. If we need a replacement for it, we have time to look at it even a little bit easier and quick and and more thorough now to get it in place in case we need it down the road. So it's it's eased up, but you know, there's still that hmm, what's gonna happen tomorrow. Yeah, I mean I agree. Right. With, I agree with Art because um, you know, from looking at it from the threat perspective, um, you know, we've already seen other cases, you know, happening, you know, additional attacks going on in the in the healthcare sector. Um you know, from our FortiGuard lab standpoint, you know, the threats uh, are real. In fact, we've seen, you know, actors um, and actor groups that haven't been active in months or if not even years um, that have now gotten back into the game to exploit, you know, because, you know, so much of our IT and security staff have been focusing on, you know, handling all the different challenges um, that's been going on with, with the pandemic. So, um, you know, definitely the our adversaries aren't slowing down their sophistication and, you know, the number, number of attacks. Right. I mean, they're aware, Renee, that everyone has had to put out, extend their network and do a lot of things in a hurry and their risk tolerance has gone up and that's like opening the door. So the bad actors are completely aware of what's going on and they're taking advantage of it, correct? Absolutely. Yep. Nemi, anything more you want to add about um, bringing down the risk level? You talked about it a little bit, but anything else you want to add? I'll just say one one thing, which is that, um, you know, kind of 
breaking, and I know it's, a, it's more of a science than anything, but breaking the, the subtle difference between, you know, risk tolerance and the, the overall sort of appetite of, you know, the risk that your organization actually carries. And, and the point to make there is that um, organizations have had to increase the level of risk tolerance through this crisis. I don't necessarily know that um, that's going to come down anytime soon, as Art mentioned, because there may be a resurgence and no, no one really knows. So I think that the, the, the risk tolerance, the level of risk that we are prepared to accept is going to persist for longer than most of us want. I think what we can do, and something Renee just mentioned, is training our organizations, training our end users. You know, we had the knee-jerk reaction, everyone go work from home. Let's take that as a simple example. What are we now going to do? Um, how many of us have taken the time to provide some type of training? And I don't mean a two-hour compliance training, even a five-minute micro-module that just says, here are some tips on how to work effectively at home. You know, and so we've got to think about risk from that lens, you know, in the sense that we have had to increase, um, or, you know, our level of tolerance. We are now open to taking more risk. How do we empower? How do we train our organizations, users, um, third parties and all of that to deal with this state for a prolonged period of time? Because I don't think that we, I mean, we would want to wind back to pre-COVID levels, but that's, that's, that is somewhat out of our hands at, at this point. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, you know, that's an excellent point. Um, Cambridge had taken the approach <clears throat> about training uh, a little bit differently than the traditional, you know, here's your cybersecurity training, here's your how you work from home and everything. The approach that we took and that I was asked to take um, was particularly driven by our wellness department. So the wellness department does all of these programs about, you know, yoga and healthy eating and everything like that. But during COVID, they found a lot of their surveys were coming back, you know, my computer's this and that, and their tents at home and all of that. So what we ended up doing is some vignettes uh, on, our, on our video platform, um, that you know uh, that you could they could drop in um art for argument's sake would be on there for 15 minutes this is the topic on monday on thursday art's going to be on there this is the topic for thursday so i started doing those and have continued to do those and expand them to like 30 minute stuff now and that really took a lot of the pressure and you know it can be as simple as answering you know it's you know something about a home computer or your internet speed and mm. it keeps dropping and there's a lot of angst about that for people that don't work remotely am i doing this right how do i plug this in you know we had a platform that they didn't need to be on the you know on the network in order to actually participate in the in the meeting so we started doing these little vignettes and got a lot of great feedback of thanks you know this was really helpful now i don't have this problem you know, so that's that's that was the wellness approach to, you know, from providers all the way down to, you know, um, you know, regular line staff that are actually just working from home for the first time in fiscal. You know, there's questions there that they just couldn't get answered from the help desk and they just wanted to talk to somebody. So it was more of a dialogue talk versus a presentation yeah. um, and on specific topics. So that was kind of an interesting twist on how we did that. Yeah, I Very mean, cool. Go yeah, ahead, Renee. Art brings up a, a good point. Um, 
you know, having more of that human to human interaction. Um, because if you think about it, the majority of the workforce is now in an environment where they can't just walk down to the help desk to ask a question or walk into their boss's office saying, hey, you know, I'm having an issue. Um, and that's why you know, we're seeing an uptick in things like ransomware. You know, majority of ransomware attacks start from a social engineering attack and primarily from a phishing attack. Um, and what ends up happening is now that you, you see, you know, more employees, you know, potentially falling victim of these attacks because, you know, essentially um, they're now acting as that first line of defense. Um, so we've seen a lot of organizations, you know, um, including our own, um, take more uh, of a proactive approach in, in doing things like uh, phishing awareness campaigns um, and doing phishing testing of our, our employees, um, you know, to make sure they're, they're aware, um, you know, and know what to do when they start seeing these, um, these phishy emails. And I'm sure that uh, with everything going on, it's a lot easier to trick people. You know, they're remote. You know, you pretend you're from the help desk about COVID or something. So I'm sure they're they're finding uh, quite a bit of success these days. Um, next question. Let's start with Renee on this. Um, what are the major threats you are currently concerned about, and what are the best defenses to those threats? Yeah, I mean, definitely when you're looking at um, some of the threats going on, um, kind of one that I just mentioned is the ransomware. Um, again, practicing good cyber hygiene, the security awareness um, training, you know, ensuring you have you know good e email gateway security in place um, and sandboxing to help you know deal with some of those uh, malicious files and attachments. Um, but also making sure that folks have good backups in place, um, stored offline, um, and that they've texted, tested their backup strategies. Um, but also looking at things like, you know, in, especially in the medical field, um, you know, the non-secure medical devices, um, you know, making sure that you have things like network access control that you can uh, classify and, and identify um, these devices and that they're properly segmented so that, you know, if a device does become malicious, that, you know, um, the level and depth of impact that it can have on the organization is limited. Um, the endpoints, um, I think we've talked about it earlier, a lot more of the endpoints now are potentially, you know, either BYOD devices or, um, so again, you know, ensure that you have um, identity and access control on those devices um, and make sure you have endpoint uh, protection and, you know, EDR um, endpoint detection response because again, you know, the, the help desk now is now remote. Um, so being able to um, be able to respond and detect um, malicious activity and being able to remediate it remotely is, is really going to be key for organizations. Um, and last but not least um, is the insider threat. Um, and that can be, you know, the accidental insider or the malicious insider. You know, for a lot of organizations, um, some may be faced um, with having, you know, um, dealing with layoffs. Um, so now you have the potential of having more malicious insiders because of having disgruntled employees. Um, but then you again have that accidental insider where, like I said before, accidentally clicking on, you know, malicious links. Um, so that's why it's kind of important to really be focusing on things like having monitoring detection um, with user and entity-based behavior-based analytics, um, implementing things like least privileges to ensure that, you know, if, um, you know, one of your folks have their uh, credentials compromised, um, that, again, they only have the least privileges um, in place, you know, the least amount of access to do what they need to do their jobs, and then employing things like deception technologies. Um, deception technologies can really cause more uh, frustration for the adversary and slow them down um, to give your IT and security teams, you know, the ability to, um, you know, more chances to detect um, this malicious behavior um, and being able to, to respond for it before they can do actual damage. 
So Art, um, based on so Renee gave quite a list. Now it was quite a long list, and it was a comprehensive list, but nonetheless, it's a list. Um, and what I always wonder is when you hear about something that went wrong, oftentimes it's a patch wasn't done or, you know, regular patching wasn't done or something wasn't encrypted. And they make it sound like, well, you sit, you're sitting there saying, well, why? Why? So if, if we can get a list, why did some things not get done? Is it just so much? Is it hard to do it all at once? Is it hard to afford to do it all? Why do things fall through the cracks in a basic checklist of what should be done? Well, I think that there's always a cost to it, right? There's there's both a monetary cost and, and a human capital cost when you really start to think about it this way. So you've got a limited set of resources from a staffing perspective to go down through this. You've got limited technology to do this. Um, and, and sometimes um, you're actually you're actually constrained by the actual vendors that you actually deploy in technology. I'll give you an example here. You know, going down and through and patching, you know, having a regular patch system, you know, that keeps track of that and regularly doing that on a regular basis and applying that has ramifications across your portfolio of applications. Some applications can't take that patch or are not able to take that patch. And you've got to have your the people that run the applications test the application or you're going to stop the you know the productivity of that application a primary example of this is is the diagnostic industry they will always argue which is untrue that the fda regulates them and they can't you know do all these patches all the time or you can't put virus software on their stuff which goes to renee's comment you got to segment this stuff off of there that's really not a true statement they they can patch as long as you do not change you know the functionality of the intent of the software that's on there. So they just, they do this all the time because it's very expensive to go from 2003 server and XP server running a lab instrument to go back to the FDA and, you know, cause they are now changing the, the way that the application works and goes through that part of it. So you have these defunct systems that you're dealing with. So it's twofold. It's, it's both having the ability and the time and the resources to do it and, and the funding, but you're also constrained by certain vendors that you deploy in the environment. So you've got this whole ecosystem that's really large and dynamic and you're bouncing back and forth with these buckets um, that you can control by segmentation and keep things off to the side. But ultimately there's something that could happen. Vendor comes in, plugs in a USB drive and you've got lateral transfer, hopefully not across one of your, your lab instruments because they don't know where that USB drive came, but his intent was, or their intent was just to patch something or fix something. It's, it's just this dynamic environment in many things that, you know, you've got many facets and many buckets to deal with and, and some are larger buckets and some are smaller buckets, but I think that's, it's just a general challenge. Nemi? Yeah, I think both of you covered it very, very well. There's just a few things I would add, you know, um, and going back to sort of the COVID uh, team, there's something that I've always mentioned, uh, which is a, the, the post breach mentality. You know, if you look at all the things that organizations have achieved globally in being able to respond to the impact of COVID and remote working and, um, you know, mobilizing their workforces and all of those things, if you take even just an average um, organization or an organization with an average level of success, and you go back nine months and tell them that they would have been able to achieve that, they would have told you no. 
they would have told you, you know, they've gone through a thousand committees. There would have been all of these reasons why they, uh, they would not have been able to do that. And then here comes the crisis and all of a sudden teams that don't work together are working together. So that's just, a, I guess, a general plug to start with to say that these things are possible. You know, the security team, the vulnerability team can work with a patch team to actually get patching done. Uh, we can work with vendors to get um, end of life software uh, with say extended security updates or, or things like that. But a lot of times we, we stop at the first hurdle and that's not easy. And I'm not for one minute trying to trivialize the work that is involved, but I, I just want to say it is possible. And whether you do it now or you do it in response to a crisis, like, if you have ransomware, uh, it's something that we end up doing. So I, I think we just need to to get rid of the the things that have held us back and and just move ahead. But in addition to some of the very specific things that Renee said, I I would add um, something else, which is you know depending on your organization and your risk tolerance, you may eventually decide to pay a ransom if. That is, um, you know, that's I'm not advocating one way or the other, but you may decide that you want to do that um, to get your your business back up and running. And when I speak to security professionals and organizations, um, there's not a lot of folks out there who have any clue on, for instance, how to get Bitcoin, have a Bitcoin account and all those sort of things. And I always say, well, if you, know, if you do unfortunately get hit by ransomware, uh, that is not the time to um, go figure out how to get uh, a Bitcoin account or things like that. So you may want to consider that, or you may want to have maybe part of your IR plan or your IR vendor, they have the ability to negotiate on your behalf or those sort of things. Because you know we always want to prevent these things from happening and that, that's our job and that's what we should focus on. But I think we should also focus on in the event that we get hit by um, a ransomware attack, um, you know, how do we respond to it? You know, Renee mentioned backups. That's absolutely key. But in addition to backups, do we test those backups? Do we make sure that those backups are um, offline and that we can essentially pull the plug? Because the last thing you want is to eventually have your backups be also corrupted and you restore um, your, your backups and you essentially um, just propagate in the, the, the ransomware across your state. And the final thing I would mention is understanding your data flow. That is so significant, especially in the healthcare space. A lot of these medical devices, um, some of them are IoT devices, some of them are just devices with embedded OSs. A lot of them have very limited functions when you really think about it. If you think about a, a device, for instance, that is taking x-rays or doing scans, it is possible that that device only ever needs to communicate with a server in one direction to maybe it communicates with an image server, it updates the image, that image may actually be done once a day at night during you know, um, um, a sync job or that sort of thing. That device does not necessarily need to have free reign to talk to everything on your network and have everything on your network talk to it. So as part of your onboarding of technology, you also wanna make sure you understand the data flows that each of these technology components have so you can appropriately uh, restrict segments, isolate all of those things. Because if you don't understand the data flow, all of those other things become a much bigger challenge down the line. Excellent, very good. Um, all right, we have, uh, we're kind of out of time, but I do wanna give 
Renee, uh, a chance. Um, either you can react to anything Nemi said, but also I want to get some final thoughts from you. Um, what, you know, you mentioned during uh, earlier in the event about uh, sort of talking with people and being a good partner to the business. And I've heard CISO say, you know, we cannot be the department of no, right? We have to empower, but we cannot empower in a way that essentially puts the organization or our jobs in jeopardy, right? So what's your advice on doing that? On on Because it's not always easy. I mean, sometimes it's very easy. You say yes, you say no. It's clear. It's the gray areas that are hard. What's your final advice there? Um, again, I, I think it's, it's you know, it's building those relationships from the get-go, um, you know, and, and, and making those relationships, you know, to be a part of when organizations are going out and trying to either procure new technologies or, or, or new systems or solutions, um, is ensuring that security, you know, is a part of that process, even if it needs to be in the procurement process. And similar with your, your privacy teams. Um, and, and working with them to, to find those solutions. Um, so it really focuses on being that that collaborator, um, but also be willing to, you know, come up with alternative solutions. Um, you know, so also doing that work to find, hey, yeah, this one may not, here's where all the risks, but, you know, maybe we can still meet your needs, but maybe look at an alternative solution or, or approach. But um, again, it's, it's really, you kind of have to be, security has to be, there at the beginning, um, because it's a lot harder to have those discussions about the risk and, and how do we, you know, do things securely from the beginning versus trying to do it at the end, trying to bolt it on after the end already after you already have solutions in place. Um, it makes it much harder to do and also ultimately um, opens up organizations to to even even more risk. All right. Very good. That's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to view and register for upcoming events. With that, I want to thank our panel very much, Art Reem, Nemi George, and Renee Tarun. And I want to thank our sponsor, Fortinet, for making this event possible, and you, our audience, for coming to our events. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.